into what we're talking about this morning. And uh, we, if you're here uh, this morning and just joining us, we're uh, going through and just kind of getting ready for the Christmas season. And you've uh, entered into a series of messages called A Vision for Christmas, where we've been just kind of uh, giving different reasons throughout Scripture about why we should celebrate. I want to give you a vision of Christmas that is worth celebrating. So today we're going to be looking at Philippians and getting a reason to celebrate Christmas from the book of Philippians. So here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to read the entire passage that we are going to cover this morning in one go, and then I'm going to break it down verse by verse this morning. So if you actually want to start at uh, chapter 2, verse 1, let me read along, and uh, this is the reading of God's word. So if there is any encouragement in Christ, if there's any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind and having the same love, being filled in full accord in one mind. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you not only look to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this in mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not, uh, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking on the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has exalted him highly and bestowed on him the name that is above every name. So at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and earth and every tongue should confess that Christ Jesus is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And the whole church said, Amen. Amen. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this passage of Scripture today. Thank you for the book of Philippians. And we pray as that we go through the book of Philippians, you would teach us a little bit about Christmas and a little bit about your word. In Jesus' name, amen. All right. So I have a question to ask of you, and I know it's going to sound strange, but... The question that I'm going to ask of you is, um, I want you to think about all the kind of relationships you right now that are in your life, church relationships, family relationships, relations with in-laws, friends at school, you know, whatever, friend, uh, relationships with your brother and sister, and I just uh, want you to hone in on a few of them that are a little bit divided right now. Now, you don't have to say their names, because I don't think that would kind of be kind of embarrassing, but just a show of hands, how many of you have at least one relationship that you find right now in your life that's kind of divided? All right. Awesome. This message is for you. <laughs> All right. So the question that I have this morning is, are your relationships, the ones that you're divided about, the ones that are broken, the ones where there's disunity in there, are they worth saving? 
are they worth uh, trying to bring unity back into a divisive relationship? Uh, I don't know if you know this or not, but generally Christmas time is a time that's supposed to be about peace and unity, but the truth of the matter is, is that the way that it's practiced, at least in North America, it's actually a pretty divisive time of holiday. There was a report done by the American Psychological Association that said during the holidays, get this, 70% of people find themselves increasingly fatigued due to the division that is happening during the holidays. <clears throat> the, uh, there's another one that said, that kind of gave a similar statistic that said that 61 of people surveyed experienced increased stress due to the arguments that go on in Christmas. How many of you have ever had an argument spew up over the holidays? Yeah, there's been a few. Do you know what, want to know what the top five holiday arguments are? Yes. Oh, yeah, you do. <laughs> Number one, where to go or not go for Christmas? Are we going over to your family or my family's for Christmas? How many of you had had that discussion? Yes. All right. Number two, how much money to spend? How many of you haven't had an argument about that? Yeah, okay, there's a few there. Number three, what to do with a family we don't like? How many of you have like, all right. Number four, who's going to clean up and who's going to cook? How many of you have had that discussion? That's usually one you have right after the meal, right? Yeah, yeah. When there is division, uh, when there is division that Christians have with another, uh, it, it could be a really hard time. And I want to think about just the Christmas season. I want to think about church in general. Church can be a time when there's lots of division. Am I am I right? Yeah, it can be. And you know what I found is is that I, I've been wondering. You know, is it is it worth trying to save the relationships during the holidays? Is it worth trying to save the relationship and unity between me and myself and another person? Is it worth trying to save the unity between other churches? You know what I've noticed about Satan in particular is that if Satan cannot destroy the church through persecution, I think he will just try and destroy the church through disunity. And usually disunity in church kind of happens in, a, in an interesting way. I really think that the core reason that there is disunity in church is because of mistrust of one another. That we don't uh, question, we question each other's motives. We question, uh, we, we wonder if the person has our truly best interest at heart. And as I've been reflecting on the last four years of ministry, there has been an issue in all churches that have divided churches. Do you know what it is? Oh, come on. Starts with a C and ends with a D. COVID. And if the church could not be destroyed by persecution, I think what wound up happening is we mistrust each other. I'm not, I'm not necessarily meaning here. I'm just meaning in a general sense. The path to division is a well-worn path in the Christian church. 
And it's very easily go, uh, something that's attained. It's a wide road. It's, 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 it's not very difficult to get divided in church or at home or with other Christians or anyone else during the holiday season. And it moves ahead very quickly. And the thing about division, whether you're dealing with it on an individual level with relationships in the home, during the family season, or any other time of the year, or whether you're dealing with it with uh, church unity or whatever, is that once it's there... And once it's in the church, it's very hard to put back in the box, isn't it? And what winds up happening is that it usually destroys your relationships with each other and with another. And I want to say, so the question really is, is like when you have those divisions, both in a church context and in a relational context, are they worth saving? What would scripture say to that? And the answer that scripture would say to that is yes, your relationships are worth saving. <clears throat> Listen again to the very first uh, verse in chapter 2, verse 1. So if there is any what? Encouragement in Christ. If there is any comfort in love. If there is any participation in the Spirit. If any affection and sympathy. Then make my joy complete by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in one accord in one spirit. So Dan Renton's translation of this. If there has been any benefit in your own personal growth and experience with Jesus because of the fellowship that you've had with other Christians, whether family, whether brothers and sisters, whether at school, during the holidays, or whatever, then yes, those relationships are worth bringing back the unity in. So he lists four. He lists them right here in the text. He says this. He lists four experiences that happen because we have the common relationships with other Christians. And so he says, he, and I'm just trying to, I'll try, I think I got a list here. And so he says that if you've been encouraged by other Christians, if you have had any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection or sympathy, then the, if you've experienced these things in your relationships, then yes, the unity in those relationships is worth fighting for. I'm going to say something, I'm going to tell you something very clearly. I really believe, someone told me this, is that unity must be fought for in the church at all costs. And unity must be fought for at all costs in your relationships with one another both corporately and individually, except if it's at the expense of truth. That is the only time that I could ever see a biblical justification for division. But unity is held as a high guard. So the answer to the question really from Scripture is, are your relationships worth saving if they've been a benefit to you, if they've encouraged you, if you experience love, the love of Jesus from other people, if you've seen the Holy Spirit work in their lives and work in your life, if there's been any sort of affection or comfort or anything like that, then yes, you must try to work hard at bringing unity in your relationships as far as it depends on you. So the question really is, is how do you do that? And the simple answer is this. Is that, oh man, 
how do we unite a divided people? Is it simply this, is that you serve like Jesus. Amen? Amen. Amen. That's what the text is saying. He's saying, listen, if there's been any benefit in the relationship, then make my joy complete by being of one mind, one spark, one heart, and you should look to the betterment of others. Listen to what the text says in this. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count each other uh, each other's more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this in mind among yourselves, which is in Christ Jesus. So here's the, here's the, here's the thing that I would say is that according to the text, the best way to bring unity or heal division in your relationships is to have a humility and to have sort of a uh, servant-hearted attitude that we see in Jesus Christ. Essentially, I'm going to say this. It's the humility that we see in the Christmas story that brings together a divided people. I want you to think about that for a minute. It's the servant-hearted nature, the humility of Jesus that brings, upon, that brings together a divided people. It's the humility that brings the division down between you and God. So in our, if you know the gospel well, you know that the gospel starts out like this. is that God created a world that was absolutely amazing. Perfect, right? That's how it starts. And then what happens? Someone shout it out. Adam and Eve sinned, and there became this big division between you and I and God, okay? And so God's solution to that was actually humility, is he comes down as Jesus Christ, and he shows his humility in four separate ways, which I'm going to talk about, and that act of humility, that act of servant-heartedness brought down the division between God and you, so that you and I can now have a relationship with God. Prior to that, you and I had a, uh, we had a broken relationship with God, our maker. And it was only through the humility that we see in Jesus Christ, by coming down to earth as a baby, living, dying, and rising again, that you and I now have healed that division in Christ if we believe that he sacrificed for his sins. And what the text is saying to us is this. If you want unity among each other, you've got to have the same attitude like that. That it's the servant-heartedness and the humility of Jesus that brought down the division between you and uh, God. And it's that same humility and that same act of service that is going to bring down the division in your own broken relationships. That's why he's saying, if you've been benefit from, from Christ in any way, make my joy complete. In humility, consider yourselves better than one another. Now, let me have a few moments I'm going to say about humility. <clears throat> humility is not... I didn't, I didn't come up with a saying, so if someone knows where it came from, let me know. But I really like this definition. Humility is not thinking less about yourself. It's thinking about yourself less. Does anyone catch the difference there? Humility is not thinking less about yourself, 
but it's thinking about yourself less. And it's that servant-heartedness, that willing to serve like Jesus, that's going to bind your relationships together, and it's going to bind the division that you have at Christmas together. It's going to bind all those kind of divisions that you have in church with one another when we serve. And there are four ways in the text that we see Jesus serve. And I'm going to point them out to you and then I'll, I'll let you go this morning. So the first one is this, is that he gave up his position. He gave up his position. He let go of his title. Verse 5 to 8 says this. <clears throat> Who, though he was in the form of God, did not, consider, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. So let me just say right out, of the start, right out of the gate that we cannot appreciate the story of Christmas until we are clear about Jesus' identity. The story of Christmas only makes sense after we ask the question, who was Jesus? The NIV would use the phrase, uh, the very nature of God, but the ESV and other translations use the word in the form of God. The Greek word is used morphe. It refers to the true and necessary nature of something, with an emphasis both on eternal and external. Essentially, Paul is saying that all that could be said of God that is his nature and his essence. That is true of Jesus as well. So let me just really quickly give a cursory description of who God is. God is not someone or something that can be created or apart from of creation. He is set high above us. He is not limited by our ability to understand him. All that he is, his glory, his holiness, and his goodness, and power, and knowledge, greatly surpass our own. God is set apart and superior to anything in creation. God is also present in creation. He's not so far removed that he is not involved in it. God is always present in creation all at once. He is imminent in his creation story. It's in him that we move and live and have our being. God understands and has full knowledge. He has intimate detail of how things work. His understanding of knowledge is immeasurable. The measure of wealth of knowledge would fill the heavens. He understands and holds the very genetic structures woven through a blade of grass. When it comes to individual human lives, God sees and knows you totally. We are completely 100% transparent to God. God knows and understands. James, take a seat, bud. He is totally self-sufficient in his ability to exist and relate. He did not create, his, create us out of his own need. He does not need us to do anything for him. If he wanted to do something, he could simply do it himself. God is all-powerful. He possesses all means and ability to exercise what he desires to do. God's power has no limits on boundaries and time, extent, space, or magnitude. And yet, here's what I'm going to say, friends. At Christmas, we celebrate the babe clothed in flesh. The latter part of our six states that he is the incarnation. That he did not consider equality with God something to be grasped. The word grasp 
is rarely used here in the, in, in the Bible, but one possible way of interpreting this passage is that Jesus did not lay hold on his status as God-like prize. He did not hold to the status as something to hold on to. So help me, let me help you explain this a little bit. Imagine, if you will, a pirate discovering a hidden treasure buried somewhere on an island. He's got a map with a big old X on it. The treasure is in the cave, and that cave is full of gold, pearls, and piles of money. He's become rich beyond his wildest dreams. He can now afford what he wants. He can not only buy ships and armies, but he has rule over all nations. He has become the most powerful man on earth. The treasure has transformed his status. That, says Paul, is what it's like with Jesus. His nature, his form, he is that he is fully God, and that his identity was to Christ what a huge hidden treasure was to a pirate. With that treasure, Christ could do and accomplish anything that he wanted. But instead of using his identity to his advantage, he refused to grasp it. He refused to lay hands on it. He refused to take advantage of it. Jesus is eternally God, without beginning or end. And what Paul is telling us here is that at some point in history, Jesus entered in as a human being. But prior to that, he was still existing and living and ruling and reigning as God. When Jesus was in heaven, what was he seated on? Anybody? Starts with a T. A? A throne. When he comes to earth as a baby, what does Mary place him in? A manger. He's in a feeding trough. Jesus... Uh, he's laid in a, his first bassinet was a place where animals got their food. We also know that Jesus had a bunch of angels in heaven. You remember that? He was ministered by angels. Angels served him. When he came down to earth, who was he ministered by? Mary and Joseph. And so here's what I want to say is that Jesus traded down all his glory and honor and came down to earth to save you. And me. He lay low his status for you. He came to earth for you. I've been so blessed by this. And so here's what I would like to say to you this morning. The first way that Jesus serves us is by not, by willing to let go of his title. And I'm just kind of wondering if you were in the same spot. If you would be willing to serve and love those that you are divided with to the point that you would be willing to let go of your status and your reputation. Practically, I think the way that this works for me is, is like, in order to be the pastor, like, here, here's, what I, here's, here's what happens. I've been in a setting where people have called me Pastor Dan and Dan, okay, as my first name, right? And some pastors you'll meet, they'll get really upset if you call them by your first name. Okay? Some pastors won't. And here's what I've learned. I've simply learned this. That someone calls me Dan and doesn't recognize my title as pastor, I'm okay with it. Why? Because I'm trying to emulate 
the fact that I don't need to be held to that status the same way that Jesus did. I'm willing to let it go. So first thing that Jesus does to serve is he actually lets go of his right to be called God. He doesn't cease to be God. He just lets go of the rights and privileges that are associated with it. Secondly, he became a slave. Listen to what it says here. Though, in verse 6 and 7, though he was in the form of God, he did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptying himself by taking on the form of a servant. Not only did Jesus lower himself to be a human, he became the lowest kind of human. He didn't need to do that. He could have become a rich, powerful human. He could have become Caesar. He could have become like a super celebrity. But Jesus didn't do that. Jesus obeys his mom. And he does his chores. And then he works a simple job with his father, who's his adoptive dad and he's a carpenter. I want you to think about how the humility of Jesus here and how Jesus served in here. Here is Jesus Christ, the one that invented the very idea of an electron. And he's taking pointers on how to create something from his dad. Okay? I want you to picture that for a moment. Have you ever been in a situation where maybe someone is telling you how to do a job and training you how to do a job, and you're just kind of sitting there going, I would know way more than this guy does. Hands up. Have you ever done that? Yeah, of course you have. And so have I, right? And in that moment, you just kind of want to tune out and not listen, right? It's like, I could do a better job. This guy knows nothing. That's kind of the situation that Jesus is placed in, okay? He's taking pointers on how to create something from someone that he created, right? Or if you want a really good, uh, I've really, this one really spoke to me about how Jesus took on the nature of his servant. There's a story later in Jesus' life where Mary and Joseph take Jesus on a trip to Jerusalem. And while they are there, they lose Jesus, right? Remember that story? And when they go find him, they find him sitting at the Pharisees' feet. And I want you to hear what it says in the text. He says this. Um, it, says that, uh, it says this. is that when they found him, they found him three days later in the temple, sitting among the teachers, listening to them and asking them questions. Don't you think that's a little weird? You should. Because here's Jesus, the creator of the heavens and the earth, the one that Colossians says, that by him and through him all things hold together. He is the expert on himself, and he's taking pointers on theology from people that he know less about God than he does. Don't you think that's a little weird? It's his humility. It's his servant-hearted attitude. Jesus became a servant. That servant-hearted attitude is what healed the division between you and him. And there's no task that I take. Here's what I take away from that. There is no task beneath God. He, that he is willing to lower himself to the point of a carpenter just to fight for you. There's no one that Jesus is not even willing to learn from in his humanity 
And I think that shows a great deal of humility. He doesn't need to do that. And he did it strictly for you. You need to understand something. When, the, when it says that he became a servant, he came to serve, first of all, God, right? So the scripture says in John that I've come to do the will of my father, right? But it also he came to seek and serve you. Listen to what it says here. Luke 22, but you are not to be like that. Instead, the greatest among you should be the youngest, and the ones who rules over you who, who should be one who serves. For who is greater, the one at the table or the one at the ser- who serves? Well, obviously, it's the one who's sitting at the table getting served. But am I not one among you as one who serves? Or if you look at Matthew 28, it says this. Jesus, talking about himself, said, The Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. Jesus, who being in the very age of God, uh, began to serve you. He came to die for you. He came to free you. He came to love you. He came to wash your feet. And I know that sounds a little bit uncomfortable, doesn't it? That the God of the entire universe came to serve you. But it's true, he did. He didn't have to die on the cross, he did. He did it because of you. There's nothing, no no job that God would not stoop to, to save you. That's what it says in the text. He was a slave. Thirdly, it says that Jesus associated by, with us by becoming human. In verse 7, he emptied himself by taking on the very form of servant. Talked about that. And he being born in likeness of men. He, Jesus is God, the judge rising from the dead, and he went to the gallows as a criminal. Jesus impoverished himself. He exposed himself to evil spite. He makes it all the way to the cross of Jerusalem's hill and becomes the very sum and sign of utter selfless humiliation. Jesus was human in every sense of the word. He was a human being. He dressed the way that we dressed. He put sandals on. He put a robe on. He put an undergarment on. And that's what everybody looked like, by the way. There was no halo around Jesus' head when he was alive, distinguishing him from everybody else. He was a human being. There's that Christmas uh, carol, I don't know if you're familiar with it, goes, the cattles are lowing, the baby awakes, but the little Lord Jesus, what? I, I don't buy that. Like Crying is a signal that all babies... Or have been given to them by God to let dad know they better get mom. (laughs) Of course he cried. It wasn't a sinful cry. He was fully human and he would be fully seen as human. Born in an insignificant manger in an insignificant inn. Really in an insignificant village. Raised in a humble college by a lowly mother and a tradesman. Jesus was fully human. I know that we talk about the fact that Jesus is God, but I want you to just think a little bit about those two ideas and think about how wonderful that is, okay? 
Because on one hand, you have Jesus who created the universe, who knows every hair on your head, who is, who is all-powerful, who is all-knowing. And that you have Jesus who is a fully human person who takes on the very weaknesses of a human being. Does he get tired? Yes. In fact, we know that he gets so tired that he falls asleep in a storm. Does he need to eat? Yes, he does. Is his body frail? Yes, it is. He died on a cross. Okay? He is both fully God and fully human, and he took on the role of a human being because he wanted to associate with you and I. We serve each other by having that same mentality. Lastly, Jesus served us by dying on the cross. It says this in the text. It says, And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth, and under earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. You see, friends, why is it so important that Jesus dies to serve you and me here? If you've never heard this, let me just give a brief uh, brief kind of gospel story. Here, here's the deal, is that God has created you and I, and he loves us. But then sin entered the world, and sin broke us. And all the evil that has happened breaks God's heart. Right now, as we're sitting here, God, because he is all-knowledgeable, is watching what is happening across the entire planet right now. And he's seen people hurt. He's seen people die of hunger. He's seen people who are crying because of injustice. He's seen the person in Calgary right now in some alleyway that's, on a, that's shooting up in the needle. He sees all of it and it breaks his heart. And you know what the thing about that is? Is like if people are going to treat my, the, my creation like that, someone's got to pay the price. Right? And who's that person that has to pay the price for all the suffering and all the brokenness in your life and in my life? That's me, and that's you. The Bible says that the cost of our sin is our death. But here's what happens in Jesus. Jesus comes to earth as a human being, and he dies on the cross, and all the punishment, all the anger, all the justice, all the... All that we owe God for everything that we've done wrong gets put onto the person of Jesus Christ. Every sin from Adam all the way to the cross, all the way to 2023 in Three Hills, Alberta, all the way to the end of the time when Jesus came back gets poured onto the person of Jesus and Jesus takes all that sin from you and puts it on, on himself because he loves you. It's the humility and the servant-hearted nature of Jesus that heals the divide between you and I. I really love this verse because it actually tells us that God has no ego to stroke. He's not prideful. And it's in that there were <clears throat> where I just want to say that Jesus' humility was the factor in healing the divide between you and God 
And I want to say that if you've been experienced any sort of division in your relationships, it's that same mind, that same attitude, that's going to heal the division between you and the person you're divided with. So the question I would really have for you today is, are you willing to serve the people that you have an issue with the same way that you are will, that Jesus served you? Would you be willing to give up your position for them? Would you be able to willing to serve them? Would you be willing to associate with people that are less than you? Would you would you be willing to suffer for them like Jesus did? Quick story before we go. This last one, he be, he he. Uh, that third point there, he became a human and associated with someone. A long time ago, I was serving in a ministry that worked in inner city Winnipeg. And the way that it worked is it was a Sunday church service. And a lot of people came in from the church. They were, they were on something. They, and so it became a very, very interesting place to do ministry. And they did ministry a little bit differently. So they would... Instead of pews, they would have tables. And you would gather around the table, and the pastor would come up, and they would do the hymns, and they would have the message. And so the idea was is that you, as the person who was ministering, would go and associate with people that you would normally associate with. And I actually I went there for my very first time, and I spotted someone who was like, that's the person I'm going to hang out with, and I'm going to get to know, right? So I went down, and I sat beside him, and I just struck up a conversation. And I went like this. Hey, how you doing? What's your name? All this kind of thing. And, and he just looked at me. And I, I kid you not, this is the first thing he said to me. Dude, I'm straight. Now at that point in time, I don't know if you've noticed, but I've lost my wedding ring. It's, it's in Lake Winnipeg. Um... That's another story. <laughs> so I just had to tell him that I was married <laughs> to, to a beautiful wife and that she was sitting in the back, right? And he says, oh, well, that's interesting. Let's come and talk. So we had this great conversation. But the thing that I thought was very interesting is my heart broke because what that said to me was that, is that no one was willing to associate with him at all. And the only time that someone who was of his same age and same gender came up and was nice to him, he took as a move. And I just want to say that it's when we associate, when we serve like Jesus, that the healing that we see in Jesus' life comes by. So let me, let me, I hope that kind of gives you an illustration of, of why serving like Jesus and having his humble heart is so important to the Christmas scene. People are so broken that even a nice gesture cannot be taken in a pure way. And I really think that Christmas needs some time. People need to heal during Christmas. So, that being said, I want to give you, recap the three reasons so far, why, or actually four reasons that we have to celebrate Christmas. The first one comes from Revelation 12 where we talk about the idea that Jesus has thrown away the accuser of brethren. 
And there is no more guilt and shame in Christ Jesus. You can read about that in Romans chapter 8. We also learn that through Malachi's that Jesus, God makes the way of salvation easy to find. It's in the person of Jesus. We also learn that God uses the smallest among us to do his greatest thing. And the fourth and the final reason why I would give you to celebrate Christmas from Philippians is that Jesus' humility is the thing that saved you and brought healing in, into your life. And it's the number one thing that will bring healing and unity into each other's lives as we serve like Jesus. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Father, thank you that, for your word today. And we pray that as we uh, open up your word that it would be true of us this Christmas season. That we would look not only to our interests but also to the interests of others. That we, we would have that mind among ourselves like Jesus, who being in the very nature of God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but emptied himself like that. In Jesus' name.